This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Describe where we are right now. We're we're on top of uh, Crown Mountain uh, at uh, Ackley Communications Tower. I'm 1,500 feet up, looking out over the lush green vegetation that blankets the island of St. Thomas, one of four large islands that make up the U.S. Virgin Islands. They don't call it America's paradise for nothing. I'm here with Steve Scully, a Virgin Island resident and an IT contractor. This is a... Uh ideal spot. There's only one higher on the island than here. Years ago, Steve crossed paths with a multimillionaire who hired him to set up an expansive communication network on a nearby private island. And this massive tower of zigzagging metal and antennas is where all the data originated. He did not want to be out of touch. The island was no ordinary island. From its villas to its landscape, it's impeccably designed. And that's amazing. You can see his island from here. Yeah. And on a clear day, off to the east, across a span of turquoise water, you can even see it from way up here, the island of Little St. James. We can see it, but how far is it from uh, right here to uh, the island? 10.16 miles. The island's owner wasn't ordinary either. Uh, I saw a T-shirt one day that actually said Little St. Jeff on it. That was the way that, that Jeffrey liked the island referred to as Little St. Jeff. The owner was Jeffrey Epstein, who had bought himself an entire island in the late 1990s, building it up into a tropical paradise. We always have these beautiful tropical trade winds that blow through here. During the years that Steve worked for Epstein, he says he spent a lot of time on Little St. James. And he says that while there, he saw some things that were unsettling to him. There were pictures in the office that were uncomfortable to me. The gymnasium had a um, full poster-sized photo of a young girl that was topless. But it wasn't just photos. Yes, I saw girls on the island that to me looked very young. Jeffrey Epstein had a massive real estate portfolio that spanned two continents. He started out in New York, then he bought the Palm Beach residence, bought the New Mexico ranch, and then he bought the island in the Virgin Islands. He also bought an apartment in Paris. When we went out on a boat, they would say, hey, I, I would say, man, who lives over there? Is that U.S. territory? And then they would say, yeah, that's pedophile island. But it was his own private island that may have been his most extravagant. The island is a uh, paradise type of uh, island. Everything that you could uh, imagine that a retreat in paradise could be is, is there. And as we've heard, wherever Epstein had a home, there would also be allegations of abuse. I was terrified. I didn't know what was going to happen if I walked out of this room where this was going on. To be honest, I didn't think leaving was an option. It was just like at such a gut level, I knew that I was in danger and it was scary. But it was on his private island where Epstein's alleged abuse seemed to have no limits. He certainly got off on the fear of it all and the intimidation of it all and the power in it. I think that's part of what's so hard is like, I feel like he took my power. I realize what I am. I'm very comfortable in my own skin. What I'm really free to do is I'm free to follow my own personality. I can't be totally wacko in what I do, but within, on my own island or on my own ranch, I can think the thoughts I want to think. I can do the work I want to do, and I'm free to explore as, as I see fit. I'm Mark Remillard, and today... On Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, part two of our look at Epstein's real estate empire, we travel to Epstein's tropical paradise to see his private island firsthand and hear how in this idyllic setting with its sandy beach and crystal blue waters came some of the most disturbing and violent allegations against him. Chapter 7. Little St. Jeff. I am someone who feels a lot and someone who's been through a lot and is ready to stop paying for someone else's mistakes. 
This is Shante Davies, who in 2001 was 21 years old and studying acting in Los Angeles. She says she had a turbulent childhood, filled with periods of homelessness and physical abuse. But as a young girl, she knew she wanted more for her life. As a kid, I, I, I dreamt of being an actress and a model. My cousins were acting and doing movies and modeling, and I would be brought to sets and whatnot. And, um, you know, I just thought it was so exciting. She'd landed some small parts in theater and film. I came down here and I got very lucky right away. Um, I booked a few small parts. I booked a small part in American Pie 2, um, which never made it into the film. But, you know, it was I got my SAG card that way. She says her career was gaining momentum until a neurological disorder brought it to a halt. If you could imagine the worst case of food poisoning you could possibly imagine and then amplify that by maybe 20 to 30 and then spread that out over what turned into a couple of weeks and then a couple of months of nonstop vomiting and, and retching and um, I ended up having to drop my first semester of college because of it. I mean, there was, you know, many times that, you know, I would literally spend weeks, weeks in a hospital. So, I mean, you can imagine what that does to a life, you know. My plan sort of detoured at that point. She says she found some relief in holistic massages, and she began studying them herself. So that was something that, you know, I felt like it was a win-win. I was healing my own self through it and learning to heal other people. Potentially. Shantae was still a massage apprentice when she says she was invited by her mentor to make a house call at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. And this woman, this tall woman with, you know, polished, clean cut, dressed in slacks and a shirt and a sweater over her shoulders and, you know, completely not dressed for L.A. weather. Just, you know, just comes waltzing in, breezing in and... Um, introduces herself and said, Hi, my name is Ghislaine. Nice to meet you. Shantae began the massage and says Ghislaine Maxwell took an unusual interest in her. Through the course of her appointment with him, you know, she continued to ask me a lot of questions about myself, where I was from, you know, my plans for my future, you know, all these things. And she wanted to know about my background, you know, where I was from, what kind of family life I had come from, Um, just, you know, what my plans were for my life. She asked me about school, about massage. I mean, literally, it was an hour, if not longer, worth of questions aimed in my direction. Found it uncomfortable, only because, you know, here was this very seemingly important, powerful, wealthy person and how much interest she was taking in me. And I remember feeling a little bit uneasy about that. Apart from all the questions, Shantae says there was nothing unusual about the massage. And then, you know, she was finished with her session and she said, lovely to meet you, shook my hand and and we left. Later that evening, though, Shantae says she heard from her mentor that Galen Maxwell was asking for her to fly to Florida that weekend to work for her. Shantae says she was hesitant, but decided she would take the gig. Nothing else was explained. I didn't ask how many massages I'd be giving, because quite frankly, I was just bugging out that I was going at all. You know, I I had never been on a private plane before. I had barely been anywhere, really. So as far as the, it was a jet that we took. It was a very small little, maybe four-passenger cabin jet. But as Shantae arrived in Florida, she says a combination of nerves and her medical condition left her feeling terrible as she got into a car with Maxwell. You know, we get in the car and I'm like, green, you know, I'm just sick to my stomach. And so she just, she was very comforting and um, just very uh, reassuring, I guess is how I'd say. She just, you know, made me feel comfortable and told me that, you know, you know, everything was fine. During the ride, Shantae says she'd hear her first description of Jeffrey Epstein. You know, we, we had a conversation on the way there. At that point, she was explaining that she was, you know, her partner, I think is how she put it. Her partner, you know, was sort of the Ralph Lauren type. And did I like that type? And honestly, you know, I didn't know what she meant. In my 21-year-old brain, I thought, you know, like maybe she, this woman is just need, needing reassurance that, you know, her boyfriend or whoever he was, was, you know, attractive. 
Um, I remember kind of just, you know, giggling at it and not really saying anything. And They'd arrive at Epstein's home a short time later. And she said, she turned to me and said, just do whatever he likes and you won't have a problem. That's something you hear that and, and you, you think, what the f*** is wrong with you? Like, get out of there, you know? Um, but it really honestly didn't, it didn't, it didn't land really until a long time after. Despite still feeling sick from her condition, Shantae steeled herself and says soon an assistant came to get her. And she said, um, Jeffrey would like his massage now. And I hadn't met him yet. And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, here it goes. Like, you know, they're totally going to know I'm a rookie. Shantae says she was brought to a room where there was a massage table and supplies. Jeffrey came waltzing in, said, hello, my name is Jeffrey. Nice to meet you. Looked me up and down, assessed me basically the way I see it now and dropped his robe and got on the table. I remember feeling immediately so uncomfortable. Shantae says she starts the massage and he begins asking her questions about her life, ambitions, and more. He's on his belly at this point. He flipped over and he asked if I minded if he touched himself. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a deer in headlights, basically. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, sure. And he proceeded to masturbate and then he ejaculated and jumped off the table and got in the shower and said, Thank you, that'll be all now. And I left everything there, didn't pick up anything, left the room, went back to my own room, crawled in bed, and tried to figure out what the f*** just happened. Shantae says she stayed in her room all night. I remember being so confused. I remember not knowing whether or not he had singled me out, whether or not Gilan knew... You know, I didn't know if it was even something I should be concerned about, to be honest. I know I felt weird. I mean, I literally just didn't know what to think. I was just trying to process. Shantae says she didn't see Epstein for the rest of the weekend and returned home to California without further incident. She'd see Galen Maxwell a few more times after the trip when Shantae says Maxwell would come to California and hire her as a masseuse. I worked on her separately and nothing strange or out of the ordinary happened. But Shantae says she never mentioned to Maxwell what happened during her massage with Epstein. And still at that point, you know, I'm still thinking, okay, he must have, he's doing this kind of pig behavior behind his back, behind her back. I certainly wasn't going to tell her, you know. (laughs) According to Shantae, Glenn Maxwell would soon offer her another opportunity to come and work for her. But this time... They told me I'd need a passport. I didn't really know why. They said just in case. I didn't ask questions. I didn't have a passport. But that was no problem, she says. Epstein was able to get her a passport within a day's time. Shantae says she was hesitant about going on the trip, but she talked herself into it. At that point, like, you know, I think I kind of believed that maybe that was just a one-time occurrence and maybe he was just being a pervert in that moment. And, um, you know, I certainly didn't want to lose the clientele. I thought, you know, this was something, an opportunity I thought that they had given me. And, you know, I didn't want to blow it. Once again, Shantae was on a plane to Palm Beach. But not long after landing, she says she learned where their real destination was. We weren't even there a whole day, I don't think. Um, when they said we are going to be flying to Jeffrey's Island. I didn't even know he had an island. Didn't know anyone with an island. Didn't actually even know that people could actually buy islands. I didn't know that. I thought that was like make-believe. She says they boarded one of Epstein's private jets, and shortly after, they were off to the Virgin Islands. It was a true first-class travel experience, she says. We went to a private airport in Palm Beach and had a giant airplane waiting for us, you know, way bigger than the one that Gilan and I had flown on. Yeah, it was like a bedroom, a kitchen, a movie screen, even just a house on, on wheels in the air. We boarded this massive airplane and flew to St. Thomas. Welcome to St. Thomas. The time is 116. We headed to the U.S. Virgin Islands, where Jeffrey Epstein 
bought his own private island in 1998. The island was called Little St. James, but Epstein used to call it Little St. Jeff. This is one of his boats here. That boat right there? Yeah. Like a crew boat that runs back and forth. This is Sean Kilcoyne, who runs charter boat trips in the Virgin Islands and took us to Epstein's Island last year. Uh, The two islands that we're looking at right here to the left is Little St. James, and off behind us is Great St. James. Those are both the islands that are owned by Jeffrey Epstein. You can't set foot on Little St. James, but you can take a boat to within feet of it. So we are just in front of his island. How how far are we from his island right now? Ten, ten meters, not even? Maybe five or ten meters. And uh, there's this stairway that leads up and the big two cockatoo statues. You can hear the beach. Yeah, so this is Little St. James. Uh, there's structures all over the island. What you're seeing here in front of us, that's part of... The, the main structure, the main area. It was one of Epstein's most extravagant purchases. The island is roughly 70 acres, surrounded by beautiful turquoise waters and temperate weather thanks to trade winds. On the north side of the island, there are several houses. You'll see more of that when we come around the corner here into the shallow area and get a better close-up view of probably the But parts of Epstein's estate are dotted all over the island, a tennis court, a pool, a massive sundial. Epstein purchased the island for nearly $8 million, and much like his ranch in New Mexico, he'd spend millions more tailoring it to exactly his tastes. And how high up are we? Well, we're about 1,500 feet here, uh, on top of of Crown Mountain, as I said, the second highest uh, mountaintop. This is Steve Scully again the IT contractor who set up Epstein's communications network. We're on top of uh, Crown Mountain. We are um, uh, at uh, Ackley Communications Tower. And this is uh, the ideal spot. There's only one higher on the island than here. Steve took us to that tower on the nearby island of St. Thomas, where he was tasked with ensuring that Epstein had reliable communications. So Jeffrey insisted uh, that... He have some form of voice communication at a minimum anywhere he was on the island. And on the south end of the island, there was a a little private, very, very lovely rock and sand, small sand area beach that I think they called it the grotto, actually. But he liked that beach. The problem was... Epstein couldn't receive or make phone calls while he was down there. That was not an acceptable situation because when he was on that beach then, that meant he was out of touch. And he did not want to be out of touch. Jeffrey still holds the distinct position of being the most expensive single-line telephone and computer I have ever installed. And I've been doing this for a lot of years. Steve says that single line, so Epstein could get service down at the beach, cost him more than $40,000. Still, it is the, the most expensive single phone and single computer I've ever installed for anybody. And those phones were uh, all to be programmed in the, in the way that he wanted. That is, in the, with the speed dial buttons being in a specific order. And... Always, speed dial button number one was Les Wexner on every phone. And one of the most unique things about the island are the palm trees. It's actually quite striking. When you take a boat out to Little St. James, you can see rows and rows of palm trees on the island. But then you stop and you look at any of the other islands nearby, and they're noticeably absent. Oh my God, the palm trees... He had to have spent a million dollars on palm trees, at least. I mean, palm trees, it was like almost funny. The palm trees, you'd you'd go there one day and the palm trees would be set up in some way. And these are not baby palm trees that they're talking about replanting. These are full-grown, mature palm trees that they're replanting, digging up and, and replacing, putting somewhere else. As Steve Scully worked for Epstein, he'd often visit the island for work, and he says he would regularly see young girls. There were young girls on the island a lot. In the seven years, around the seven years that I 
was involved on the island as far as servicing it, I uh, was probably on the island about a hundred times, I would say, around a hundred times. And of the hundred times, I probably saw what I thought were young girls. They looked young to me, maybe between 25 and 50 times, probably in that range somewhere. A lot of them were hanging out by the pool, either very scantily clad in, in bikinis or topless, um, on the beach. I saw them at the grotto. It was always unsettling, but it's made very clear from the start that you don't interact. So, you know, I certainly didn't ever walk up to one and say, hey, you don't look like you're 18. Could I see some ID? It was not my, not my role there at all. Steve says he decided to quit working for Epstein in late 2005 or early 2006. He says the decision came after having a conversation with another guy who was working on the island. Jeffrey wanted to construct a, an infinity pool off of his master bedroom. So he brought the guy down that serviced his pool in his West Palm Beach location. And he came over and he sat down beside me on the crew boat. And he said, uh, you, you know, you seem like you're a pretty decent guy. And I said, well, thanks. I, what do you mean? And he said, what's with the young girls? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, the... That's a concern, certainly, to me. You too? I said, is it like that in West Palm Beach? And he said, worse. It's worse. And I thought, wow, I don't know how it could be worse. That, you know, it's pretty bad. Steve says the man then asked him a question that he says changed his perspective on working for Epstein. And then he said, do you have children? And I said, yeah, I have two daughters. And he said, would you let your daughters come and visit the island? And as soon as he said it, I realized I wouldn't let my two kids anywhere close to that island. And I knew then that I had to quit. I quit the next day. And looking back now, I, I kind of wish that uh, I had not been willing to turn a blind eye to what seems to me to be obvious now. We landed on St. Thomas, and then we got on a boat, and we drove to his island, just guiding across turquoise waters felt very James Bond kind of, I guess, in a way. The 21-year-old Shantae arrives at the island, dazzled by the views and swept up in the experience. Oh my God, I was just like so excited. Like there was a trampoline in the ocean and boats everywhere and this private island with this beautiful backdrop and the private chef and my own villa with like this queen-sized princess bed. I mean, all of it was just, yeah, it was very intoxicating. I was having a blast. It was really, you know, it was a private island in the middle of the Caribbean. She says she spent the day swimming in the ocean, touring the grounds, and enjoying a chef-prepared meal. So after dinner, I went back to my villa um, to go to bed because it was getting pretty late. And while it might have felt like a dream vacation at first, Shantae knew she'd eventually be called to work for Epstein and says that terrifying thought remained in the back of her mind. That's the point where I got nervous. I remember thinking, this doesn't seem good. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Shantae was in her room on the island one night when she says an assistant of Epstein's came to get her. I think I was reading a book on my bed and she said, Jeffrey would like his massage now. Shantae says the assistant brought her to the other side of the island where Epstein's villa was, the only spot she hadn't seen yet. I go in and the massage table was set up already right next to this big king-size four-poster bed. And she said, you know, Jeffrey will be here in a minute. And I finished getting the massage table set up. Shantae says she was hoping that Ghislaine Maxwell would be there too. I remember hoping so badly that, like, Ghislaine or someone was going to come too. Even today, Shantae says what happens next is hard for her to talk about. And as a warning, this section contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault. He came in and he dropped his robe as he'd had before and he got on the table. His mouth was just going a million miles a minute, just asking me all kinds of just random questions 100% he could he felt my fear I you know to try to put my massage cap on and concentrate on what I was doing and started to massage him and uh, he flipped over but instead of instead of touching himself this time grabbed me by the wrists and yanked me down on top of the bed and somehow had my shorts down and pulled me on top of him and started pushing me back and forth with one hand while he gripped my wrists with the other and stared at me with one eye to watch the shock and fear that was written all over my face. He grabbed me and pulled me down on top of him and watched me the whole time. And I said, please, no. Before, you know, as he was pulling me on him, I, I said, please, no. That was, that was all I could get out of my mouth. He finished and went to the bathroom, and I jumped up and pulled my shorts up and ran out back to my villa barefoot. I didn't even stop for my shoes. Obviously, you know, I was not okay. I can't, I can't even tell you what went through my head that night. I don't know how to describe what I was feeling or going through other than just complete isolation and fear. Shantae says it would take years for her to come to grips with what happened to her. It's been hard because I think that it wasn't until recently that I was willing to admit that he raped me. I was dancing all over the place with... You know, somehow it was my fault because I put myself there and I continued to go back and I still can't even explain that to myself. Shantae says she suffered physical and sexual abuse as a child and it made it that much harder for her to realize the effect Epstein's abuse had on her. I knew what was happening was not right and I knew that it was not consensual. Um, but as far as feeling like a victim, I think I don't know that I would have recognized that if I had felt that way because I had been a victim my whole life already. So I, I didn't look at anything that way. I kept looking at everything as another trauma to just kind of sweep away. Many of the young women who I work with actually don't realize that what has happened to them is an assault until many months, sometimes even years later. This is Dr. Jamie Howard, a clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute who specializes in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. So we don't always know, oh my gosh, this is bad, I've been raped or I've been assaulted. We might think that was uncomfortable, that was weird, um, but we don't necessarily know that that was actually a crime committed against us and we were assaulted. And so we don't act in accordance with that belief because we're still sort of disoriented about the whole thing. 
in a lot of ways, like that's what it felt like, where I just felt like trapped, like there's nowhere for me to go. And then the next day, he would pretend like nothing ever happened. And everyone would carry on, and you know, who was I going to tell? Gilan? They felt ashamed. Who am I going to tell? I don't see how anyone can help me stop this. So they really probably felt very stuck. And you think this person is more powerful than me. How on earth would someone listen to me over him? How could I possibly take him on and say that he did something wrong? Shantae says she keeps what happened to her a secret. Again, at the time, she says she still thought that Epstein was sneaking around behind Galen Maxwell's back. But looking back, she says she feels differently now and believes Galen Maxwell knew what would happen to her when she arranged to bring Shantae there. Now looking back, I think there was still a part of me that genuinely wanted to believe that she was just as much a victim as the rest of us. But, um, you know, that was my, still my own naivete. Now I see it clear as day. She was the puppeteer, you know, orchestrating it all. We tried to reach Galen Maxwell for comment and have not received a response. Shantae says, despite her abuse, she remained in Epstein's orbit, occasionally traveling and working for him. It just became a situation where I just got deeper, deeper into it, and I didn't know how to pull myself out, really. But there was one trip in 2002 that Shantae would go on that would upend her life once again. Shantae says about nine months after her assault on Epstein's island, she received a call from his office looking to hire her for an upcoming trip, but not as a masseuse. They said, would you like to go, would you like to work as a personal assistant on a trip to Africa with Jeffrey and Guillen? Shantae wasn't sure about going, since this trip was not long after she says Epstein had raped her on his island. I was obviously extremely hesitant. I mean, I should have, it should have been an absolute no, of course, but... For some reason, I still had this terrible mentality that that I could handle it, that whatever Jeffrey had already done, I don't know, I, I had a survivor mentality already that just made what happened okay for some reason. She knew little about what the trip was and who was going, only that she'd be going to Africa. The only information I got was that we would be gone for a certain amount of time to pack a very minimal bag. Um, I really thought we'd be like roughing it in the, you know, jungles of Africa. I really, you know, had this imaginative idea of what the trip would be like. Shantae says she flew to New York where she met up with the rest of the staff that would be going on the trip. And we were given packets of information. Um, and that's when I realized there was something official government-wise happening because of the packet presented to us and all the um, stops we would be making. So they gave us these shirts, these like flight attendant looking shirts. And, um, you know, we all changed, put them on. And and before I knew it, the plane was just kind of suddenly filling up with the guests of the trip. That's when Shantae says she realized this would be no ordinary trip. Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, of course, President Clinton, the Secret Service, you know, just Jeffrey Glenn. That's right. Former President Bill Clinton walked on board Epstein's Boeing 727, joining an eclectic group on a humanitarian trip for Clinton's foundation through five African countries in eight days. And the reason we were there is for Clinton to, he was meeting with people for his foundation. She recalls long flights between countries where everyone on board would spend time talking together. We sat around as people do on a plane and, you know, chatted and talked and laughed and joked and and played cards. And Clinton would tell these long-winded stories. He was just this fabulous storyteller, but very long-winded. And, you know, there was a time where uh, he was, like, telling the story. And I fell asleep in the middle of it. You know, it was a lengthy trip. I was tired. And and I woke up, I think, a couple hours later, and, and he was still telling the same story. And, you know, people were still listening, fascinated, like, fully engaged. She also tells us about a time in Nigeria when the group was at dinner. We were all at this dinner, seated around this table, and then, you know, they kind of all sang, I think, um, forget who started it, but Chris Tucker got on the mic and sang and 
Kevin Spacey sang a beautiful gospel song and President Clinton tried to sing, but I think he lost the words. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just, again, it was like, you know, just a fun little summer camp. The whirlwind of a trip kept Shantae busy, and she says nothing inappropriate happened between her and Epstein or anyone else on board. But following the trip, curiosity about it would be significant. In 2002, when this trip occurs, I mean, nobody knows anything about Epstein. That's ABC News senior producer James Hill, our lead reporter on this podcast. In 2002, three years before he'd be under investigation in Florida, no one really knew who Epstein was at that point. And all of a sudden, he's flying a former president around on his plane? Jeffrey Epstein had, for many years in New York, as he had accumulated wealth and property, had managed to keep himself out of the news. He was not someone who appeared in the gossip pages. It wasn't until 2002 when it was reported that he had flown Bill Clinton and an entourage of others on a multi-country Africa tour raising money for AIDS education and awareness that Jeffrey Epstein's name first appeared in the New York tabloids. And at that point, people began to ask the question, who is this guy? Who's the man who, with the airplane, flying the former president around the world? Soon, reporters were being assigned to figure it out, and it would lead to a couple major profiles about Epstein. One's called, you know, International Money Man of Mystery, and another is called the Talented Mr. Epstein. The whole point of these articles is to try to understand who this man is. And at the end of reading the articles, I, you know, I don't know that either of them solved the riddle. The extremely private Jeffrey Epstein had entered the public eye. It's probably completely out of character for how Jeffrey Epstein generally operated, which was not to be in the newspaper, not to be in the press, not to be noticed. To some degree, it was probably his biggest mistake. Shantae says she never had a real understanding of the relationship between Epstein and Clinton. You know, I still have no idea. I really don't. Um, nothing was ever explained as to how they were friends, what the relationship was. Jeffrey was just kind of supplying the airplane. And I think that um, that's all it was, is like Jeffrey had an airplane to supply. He happened to know Bill Clinton and Jeffrey got to bring along whoever he wanted. And I got picked out of that. I do know that as far as I'm concerned, nothing inappropriate happened on that trip. In a profile published in New York Magazine in 2002, a spokesman for Clinton is quoted saying that Epstein was a committed philanthropist and that the president appreciated his generosity during their trip to Africa. But it would become clear later that Epstein's connection to Clinton was more than just the trip to Africa. As part of civil lawsuits brought by alleged victims of Epstein, one of Epstein's pilots in 2010 turned over a series of logs that he'd kept, detailing locations, dates, and names of those who had flown on Epstein's plane. So they had been sitting in a court file for some time. They had been, a, they had been entered into the record. They'd sit there for some time until 2015, when the now-defunct website Gawker published them online. At some point, a media organization discovers the flight logs in the court record and decides to publish the entire contents of the record on the Internet. Now, at this point, obviously, most of the interest in what's in those flight logs is focused on the famous names. By that point, Epstein was a convicted sex offender, and his association with a host of famous names listed inside the pilot's logs led to intense media attention, not least of all around Clinton, who flew on at least six trips with Epstein and Glenn Maxwell 
between 2002 and 2003. Obviously, one of those famous names is the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton, whose name appears in the flight logs more than two dozen times. He's he's gone on a series of international trips with it on Epstein's jet to to China, to Brunei, to Thailand, to Paris. And when Epstein would find himself under federal investigation in Florida, starting in 2006, Epstein's attorney would even highlight his connection to Clinton in a letter to prosecutors touting Epstein as part of the original group that conceived the Clinton Global Initiative. President Clinton has never addressed how he came to know Epstein, nor the nature of their relationship. But in 2019, after Epstein's second arrest, Clinton's spokesperson issued a statement saying Clinton knows nothing about Epstein's sex crimes and that he hadn't spoken to Epstein in more than a decade, adding that Clinton had never been to Epstein's residence in Florida, his ranch in New Mexico, or Little St. James Island. But it wasn't just Epstein who would be scrutinized by the press as a result of the Africa trip. It would happen to Shantae too, albeit years later. That's because as Gawker was preparing to publish the pilot's logs in 2015, it wasn't just the famous names they focused on. People began to look at the names of the people who were on the flights with the president. And one of those names was Shantae Davies. I remember it was like two o'clock in the morning and uh, all my emails started just coming back in from like the last three days. And I was like, and it was every news outlet out there. I mean, Gawker and, you know, New Yorker and whatnot and all these things. And in a moment of panic, because I didn't know what was going on, all I saw was like, there's these articles coming out about Jeffrey Epstein. What is your involvement on the Africa trip? We found your name on these flight logs. So I responded you know, half awake at two in the morning to a Gawker email and said something like, you know, I, I don't want any part in, in this. I don't need my name dragged through the mud, blah, 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 blah. And I went to bed. But when she awoke the next morning, Gawker had published its article that included a provocative photo from Shantae's Facebook page and a reference to an R-rated movie she says she had one line in. They had taken that photo from Facebook of me um, and put the headlines that they put, softcore porn star, Lolita Express, Lord Details, you know, all this craziness. And yeah, they just took my quote, the picture and their headlines and just kind of ran with it. I have never done a film that is cr- no, no nudity. I've never even seen a full porn. I'm not a porn watcher, let alone a porn maker. So there you have it. Should I say that less angry? I can feel myself getting worked up. <laughs> From that moment on, Shantae's name would forever be associated with Jeffrey Epstein's. I've suffered physically, emotionally, job-wise, relationship-wise. I mean, you name it, like to know what I've gone through in this entire ordeal. I literally can't Google my own name because I get anxiety and it, 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 um, it's literally everywhere. Innuendos that I'm some sort of prostitute or whatever, a porn star. I mean, it's, I've been called pretty much everything at this point. There are hundreds of names that appear in the pilot's flight logs from celebrities and politicians to alleged victims like Shantae Davies. And among the names that appear in those logs is a woman named Tila Davies, Shantae's sister. Similar to the story we heard from Maria and Annie Farmer, Tila Davies alleges in a lawsuit filed late last year that in 2002, Epstein took an interest in her and used the promise of higher education to get close to her. Tila Davies has gone public with a lawsuit to allege that when she was 17 years old, she met Galen and Jeffrey and that they promised her that they were going to broaden her horizons, that they were going to pay for her education, that they would make it possible for her to do whatever it 
was that she was dreaming of doing. Tila Davies alleges that for the next two years, Epstein sexually abused her in New York, Florida, Paris, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and that there were two incidents where she says she was raped by Epstein. For the next two years, she says that, you know, she basically was at their beck and call and that Jeffrey Epstein sexually abused her at multiple locations at his homes around the world. During a press conference last year, Tila spoke publicly about Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein preyed upon me. He put me in a vulnerable and dependent situation and took advantage of me. I was only 17 years old. I was a little girl. Shantae says she didn't learn about her sister's alleged abuse until after it occurred. And she says when she did find out, she confronted Epstein about it. And that is when I told him that I no longer wanted his help and that I knew what he had done to my sister. And he said to me, he didn't acknowledge what happened with Tila. He told me that life is about reality, not about dreams, and that I would never get anywhere in life without his help. And one day I would wake up and realize that. And then he hung up on me. And I never talked to him again. That was it. How did that hit you, though, when he said that? (laughs) I have to say, like, at first, you know, it ignited the fighter in me. I was like, you. Like, I don't need your help. I've never needed anyone's help. But as the years kind of went on... um, You know, and, like, it started to become a situation where, you know, this was ruining my life in so many ways. My health, jobs, my sister, relationships. I mean, like, literally, literally everything. You, You told him, you say you told him during that phone call that you knew... Or at least you know you knew what your sister said to you. He had what reaction? Zero. Didn't care. He doesn't care. He really doesn't care. For him, I think people are a sport. And I think abusers, I think they like or love to inflict fear. They get off on it, and he certainly got off on the fear of it all and the intimidation of it all and the power in it. I think that's part of what's so hard is like, I feel like he took my power, you know, and I'm slowly trying to like get it back and I feel like I am, but it's just been such a long journey. By the early 2000s, Jeffrey Epstein's alleged abuse was truly global. Shantae would occasionally work and travel for Epstein and says he abused her nearly everywhere he had property. How many occasions would you say that happened? Oh, God, I don't know. Maybe 15, 20 times. Did it happen in more than one state? Yeah, it happened everywhere except New York. Zora Ranch, the island, Palm Beach. However, as he came under investigation in Florida in 2005 and 2006, the breadth of Epstein's abuse wasn't yet known. But Epstein wasn't just investigated by the Palm Beach Police Department. Remember, in 2006, Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder objected to how the case was being handled by the local prosecutor, and the case would be turned over to the FBI. We felt as though we were speaking to a defense attorney instead of a prosecutor. He was advocating uh, the suspect's position that uh, these really weren't all that serious of circumstances, the victims were untruthful, uh, they wouldn't make good witnesses at trial. There's lots of reasons why this case should be prosecuted. And next week, 
on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. We circle back to South Florida, where Epstein is under federal investigation starting in 2006. But what inspired hope for Palm Beach police investigators at first would instead turn into a more than decade-long fight for justice. Sex offender, you know, person who's, you know, molesting a minor. Like I said before, you read in the paper every day. They go to, you know, prison for 20, 30 years. Jeffrey Epstein had the dream team of attorneys who pulled out all the stops. This is not just coincidence. You just don't coincidentally end up in the little jail where he was. And he's going home to go to work. And he's going to an office to go to work five days a week, Monday to Friday. And then on sa- on Friday night, he shows up and he spends the weekend in jail. Once I found out that he had a no prosecution agreement and that I couldn't go after him or anybody else that he was involved with, didn't sit right with me. That was another just stab in the back for his sentencing. He's paid his way out of this and the U.S. government has allowed it. Why did you let this man get away with this? That's next time on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard, produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, Chris Francescani, as well as senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Tiffany Omohundro, Hallie Freger, Prithvi Takei, Kate Holland, Caroline Highland, and Alexandra Myers. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is Senior Executive Producer. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.